Kia ora, and welcome to Te Kupu, or The Word, with me, your host, Christopher Von Roy. Today, on the 16th of November, 2021, thank you for joining us for podcast number 10 with the indelible and amazingly talented Alina Siegfried. I've known Alina now for nearly 10 years, and I interviewed her about that long ago when she came down and was a guest poet at the Musselin's um, Live Poets Society. Alina is a narrative strategist, she's an author, she's spoken at TEDx, and she's an incredibly gifted poet and storyteller. We talk about everything from her past and going to Canada and realizing the power of poetry to bring a message of environmental sustainability across. We talk at length about her book, A Future Untold, The Power of Story to Transform the World and Ourselves. And yeah... Alina was an incredible guest to have, and I was really pretty tough with some of my questions, and she just in- answered them with incredible style and wit. And again, I need to remind you guys that none of this is scripted. I don't send questions to any of my guests. So huge kudos to Alina for the way she answered some of the harder questions. Um, yeah, so without further ado, let's welcome Alina to the show. Can you remember the last time we did our interview together? Down in Golden Bay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to recall it. Like you were in the studio, weren't you? We were sitting opposite each other. This yeah, wasn't we real... were. And I, I can't even remember what we were talking about. It was, it was about you. Word. Yeah, exactly. You did some, <laughs> um, you did, I think you were the guest poet at the Muscle in Live Poets. That's gathering. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That again since then? Have I been down there again? Um, have I? I? Since that time? I don't think I have. Yeah, you haven't. No. So no. I'm going to talk with Mark Raffles, and I reckon we should get you back down there again. Yeah, absolutely. And also, and everything. I think I've got quite a few friends that are down there. Yeah, I've got lots nice. of friends that are moving to the Bay. They're, they're, a lot of them part of this new uh, co-housing development. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had a massive influx since this COVID thing happened. You can, you can tell, you can tell it in the the clothes that people wear and the cars that are driving around. Like it's really getting right. quite upmarket, Golden yeah. Bay. <laughs> but um, funnily enough, we had the Slam Poetry, the New South Island Finals, like two weeks ago here. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, nice. which I know that you you've won that, haven't you? In the past, you won the whole thing. I won it in 2012, the National Poetry Slam, yeah. Did you end up going over to Australia? I did, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't compete over there, but um, I um, I was featured as a guest, a guest poet at ah. the Australian National Poetry Slam. Oh, nice. Yeah, but I, I, did, get... I did go over to Minneapolis and I competed in the Women of the World Poetry Slam. Oh, man, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Was, what with with entrants from all over the planet? Well, you would think that, wouldn't you? When it's called Women of the World, but no, it was entrants from all over North America, <laughs> and and you, <laughs> and New Zealand. Yeah, and New Zealand. I was the only one from outside North America. I mean, there was well, there was hey. certainly some uh, there was certainly some some immigrant poets, but but all of them lived in, in yeah. America at that point. Yeah. Well, they they have a habit of like if they win the. MLB baseball, they call themselves the world champions. I know, so. right? It's crazy. <laughs> and probably predominantly the most slam poets in the world per capita probably would live in America by now. I'd say I so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. So I guess you've got some amazing news to present with us. The way I format this is that I usually try and get people to present their origin stories, like however far you want to go back, but like where you come from and how you arrived to where you are now, which is having released this amazing book. Mm. So where did it all start for you? Oh, humble wow. beginnings. Wow, humble beginnings. I mean, it depends, as you said, how far back you want to go. I mean, I was born in Whakatane, um, did yep. a lot of my growing up there and also in Tokoroa and Rotorua. Um, yeah. Forest, forestry, uh, forestry towns, because Dad was in forestry. Um, but, yeah. Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's there's bits in the book that that trace sort of 
some of the some of my storytelling origins back to me being a, a total class clown at prim, primary school. Um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. A vocal one. A, a vocal one, but also one that really wanted to be t- taken seriously when I was being serious. So I could be a clown yeah. when I wanted to be, but I was frustrated with how the adults would treat me when I wasn't being a clown and they just still thought I was incredibly immature. And I was like, look, I can I can be, you know, I can be responsible when I need to be. And and yeah. um, I won't give away too much because it's a story in the book and it's a story of self that I kind of have worked on a lot in my adult years is, is this need, yeah. needing to be recognized as the responsible or, uh, you know, one what the person that um, has legitimacy um, to be able yeah. to speak at the table. Um, but I think, I mean, the book, the book um, is really a collection of my... Um, my learnings in my both my career and personal life around storytelling, yeah. probably over the last ooh, 10, 12, 15 years of my career. Yeah. And my, my careers have been all over the place. Like I've got this, this squiggly line career of epic proportions. It, it, you know, I was in district planning for a while. I worked as a hut warden for the Department of Conservation for a while. In Canada, I was I did a stint in construction, um, which was fun. Wow! <laughs> um, I did ski instructing over there and all the fruit picking, that kind of backpacking life. Um, but then I worked in environmental NGO, um, yeah, yeah, NGO over there for a while on on um, water issues and water policy, and um, and that's where I sort of got well, well, two things happened. I got interested in in slam poetry at that time. Yeah, that's where I started my spoken word journey. About oh, it'll be coming up twelve years ago, and also amazing. That was yeah, a... yeah I know, right? It's been it's it's like really? crazy yeah. that it's been over a decade, and that's where the book starts too. Is with this epiphany that I had yeah. around around the power of poetry and and of creative storytelling in general to um, yeah. communicate messages of complexity or. Um, sustainability or social issues to, to audiences and so yeah that was where I really started to realize the power of of story to motivate yeah. individuals um I came back here and was this a spiritual epiphany sorry was it, I, was it a I know story? <laughs> a spiritual epiphany was it something that actually happened or was it um, like a or can we not give that away people have well, to read the book no, I mean it's it, they'll they'll get it in the book too. But no, it was um it was quite it was quite literal. Like people, I I, I performed this poem about water conservation and um, yeah, and uh, this extreme water conservation um, challenge that I had set myself for one month to use no more than twenty five liters of water per day to meet all my daily needs. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not a lot of water. Sounds- Sounds like a lot, but it's not actually. It's a really lot. not. No. It's really not. What not when you factor in showering, laundry, flushing yeah. the toilet, drinking, cooking, all of that. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I wrote this three-minute poem about that experience, and then for weeks and weeks afterwards, people would come up to me both like at the poetry night, but occasionally just out randomly in public, and tell me yeah. about how they were saving water. Wow. And I was like, wow, okay. So I became this, like, the water girl, you know, like the water poet girl. <laughs> Amazing. And I was like, I had this identity. And it just made me realize, like, you know, I was working as a water issues coordinator at an NGO trying to teach people about water conservation in my day job. But, you know, we had booklets and I would do these presentations and it was all pretty boring, you know. It was not, you know. Yeah. And and, and suddenly I had this cut through with this three-minute poem that I'd performed at a poetry slam one evening. Um, so, yeah. And, I, and that was really... more effective than any of the stuff <laughs> exactly. yeah, that you'd been doing. <laughs> exactly. Incredible. Right? So it was quite a tangible epiphany, really. It was like people coming up to me and telling me. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Yeah, it's, it's really odd. And so that then it's brought... really odd to have people come and tell you that they were thinking about you in the shower this morning. It's a well, it's a I, I didn't know if I should tell you this, but I had a dream about you last night. It was bizarre. And we've only met once. Yeah. I know. And I was like, should I say this? And that's why I was asking you, like, how did this epiphany manifest itself? Because you somehow popped up in my dream. And then I woke up this morning. And I was like, shit, I hope I don't drop the ball on this interview. Like, You were very, very forceful in it, trying to get this point across. And I was like, I don't understand what you're trying to tell me. Um, yeah, bizarre. And I don't, 
like my dad was in it as well and not to go to therapy counselor session but like did I turn into pretty... your dad? <laughs> no no my dad was there as well egging you on going he needs to learn this right so it was bizarre and I have goosebumps now thinking about it so um yeah and then I was like man I didn't even book because I did get your book on the Kindle and then I was like I should have read it I should have read it but hey it's I'm still gonna look forward to reading it but I was like I should talk to her before I've read it because otherwise I'll know too much and it won't be as genuine as you yeah, that was my that was my rationale for being that's lazy. Your no. That's your reasoning for for not doing your homework. <laughs> exactly. I was like, I'll know I'll know enough just from the title because the title, if I can reiterate it, is "A Future Untold: The Power of Story to Transform the World and Ourselves." Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So that in itself almost summarizes that epiphany experience that you had, and I think that's probably lies at the core of the whole thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it summarizes it pretty aptly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, after... New after Vi- yeah. Go on. Ahead. I was going to say, after Canada, I worked in politics for a while, which was a very different style of storytelling. Yeah, communications or something, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it was, yeah, it was sort of campaign communications. It certainly wasn't, you know, um, for for um, for the, like, campaign, like, vote campaign or anything like that, it, but it was more like... Was it help, for a political party? Yes, yeah, I worked with the with the Green Party, um, okay, and so helping individual politicians on um, environmental campaigns and, and issues campaigns and so on, and I think uh, you yeah. know a campaign that I worked on down in your neck of the woods or not too far from you was the Save the Mokohinui Dam, uh, uh, Mokohinui oh, yeah. campaign, which was going to be yeah. dammed, and and that has ultimately been successful long after I left, you know, but, um, but yeah. You set the ground stone. It's nice. It felt nice that, that something I had worked on in the past had actually. Where was this dam? Uh, on the Mokohanui River on the west coast. I think it's like the, okay, uh, on the yeah, west upper, coast, upper yeah. west coast. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And in, so in terms of your the storytelling in this book, you're drawing on your own experience. And then you're also kind of looking, looking at um, – our collective ability to tell each other's stories and in that way mm. influencing people, right? So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, was, yeah. From the get go, I didn't I didn't want to write a boring how to manual on like this is how you tell stories. I wanted to yeah. show show rather than tell, right? Yeah. Um, so the book is a collection of stories about stories. <laughs> it's a, it's my own <laughs> amazing <laughs> my own stories. It's it's uh, I've interviewed a few people for the book. Um and and yeah, it's um it's just a collection of personal anecdotes from my career and, and my personal life as well. Yeah. Um, about um, you know, uh, things that I've picked up along the way about how different people tell stories. And while a lot of the thesis of the book is that we need to shift big societal narratives that yeah that underpin you know our thoughts or views about the way that the world is. Yeah. Um, you know, the narratives we have um, like that lie beneath our economic system, the narratives that we have about education, that we have about social systems, about food, um, all of these things. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's really the big work of the book. But a lot of that work starts very much at a personal level, uh, like yeah. with examining your own stories, um, figuring out um, what are the stories of self that you have and where did they come from? And are they serving you yeah. well or are they hindering your progress? And from there, you can start looking at the stories that you have about other people, which yeah. is, I believe, at the root of um, most of the most of the polarization across a number of issues that we're seeing at the moment is, is grounded in um, these narratives that we have about other people. And it, yeah. it, it manifests in this kind of us versus them thinking where um, exactly. everybody else is like wrong and, and, and you're right. Mm. Yeah, but that's, I mean, fundamentally, that's how we are as human beings, right? So I was going to hark yeah. back to um, Yuval Noah Harari, who talks about this story that you say as well, that like human beings are so successful as an animal because we're the ones mm-hmm. who've harnessed storytelling and like yeah. everything is a story. Money is a story. Love mm-hmm. is a story. Like everything is somehow works back to and I guess this is what's underlying your book is like it's about your personal experience but like the whole thing is relates back to climate change and what we actually have to do in order as a collective 
species um, to tackle this massive yeah. specter hanging over us. I mean, that's a, it, it's part of it. I talk about climate change in the book, but it's it's not the main theme of the book. I mean, the main theme of the book is um, is storytelling and shifting narratives to address systems change across a number of um, social and environmental issues. So yeah. climate change is certainly a big one of them. And it's, of course, interrelated with everything else. You know, it's interrelated with what's going on in the oceans, what's happening in our agricultural systems and and the the soils and deforestation and and all of these other ecological indicators and social ones too, right? Because, yeah. you know, as long as half of the world is, um, you know, living in, in poverty, it's it's going to be, and, and, and the other half is, you know, living in this extreme affluence where we're, we're, we're just accumulating ever more stuff and consuming, um, yeah. we're not going to be able to, um, to address climate change or any issues meaningfully. And that's, and that's where I come down in the book to have my yeah. final, final section is 10 new myths for humanity. Amazing. Can you share one or two with us? Yeah, what would sure. be one? So, yeah. I mean, the first two of them are from from me to we. So that's a move from wow. individualism yeah. to collectivism. Um, the second one is from from tree to me. And that's that's about viewing ourselves as separate and discrete from the natural world um, and, and moving towards a, a myth of um, being actually part of the natural world. Humans are nature. And I use the word myth yeah. here um, in a way that people might not be familiar with. And, and, and that's because I think in our popular culture, myth has become synonymous with lies or um, untruth or, or something, yeah. that, some, a theory that isn't true. Yeah. Um, whereas originally um, myth was um, a, a seed, an innate seed of human truth that was wrapped in a story, you know, going back to Harari. And that's, uh, yeah. that, that's how we communicated these truths to each other um so i'm, I'm reclaiming the word myth in this amazing i love it force for good yeah hey i think that's so important and i mean words are they they underlie everything they underlie perception mm -hmm. and yeah. so i think to reclaim the meaning of words is really important to the way we actually view the world and so to speak to your point about the way the tree was it tree me uh, from tree to me. From I mean, tree just, to me. It's yeah. just the, it's the catchy the catchy titles for the the chapter titles, but no. But I mean, I understand where you're getting. So I spoke to a friend of mine who's a teacher out at Collingwood Area School, and she took her whole class out into the bush, and they spoke about you know listening to rocks and following the river, and it was quite an esoteric. And and she said the kids for the first time ever she had this classroom not looking on their phones not doing anything being completely mm -hmm. immersed and she felt like yeah. she taught them more in that one single day out in nature than she did in the entire previous two months mm -hmm. in school so this is exactly what you're saying it's like reframing the narrative because how do you do that in a classroom where you're you know everyone's sitting down and you're standing there you know our educational structures have to almost change Mm. Phys yeah. physically as well do you yeah. yeah well and that's and that's underpinned by a narrative of how we think kids learn and how how education works is that you know there's the story that says you go into a classroom you sit down and you you all get taught the same thing up on a whiteboard or a chalkboard um whereas you know there's different stories about the way that people learn um yeah and this teacher has, has obviously demonstrated one of those so, so I've written down a really broad question here, and I was going to ask you, like, in your understanding, like, what is community? And then further on, like, what would be the ideal community to cater towards these new myths that you're trying to get? Mm. That's what, a good question. Yeah. Um, I mean, what is what is community to me um, is... is uh, a group of people who share at least some common common interests and it, it might be those you know those new guiding myths it might be that they share an interest in collectivism they share a commitment towards um valuing all genders equally so i've got i've got one of my one of my um shifts from the current narrative of of a patriarchal world to one where um where all genders are equal 
um, and yeah. and where we where we make time for um, actually stillness and being. There's there's one of them called from human human doings to human beings because we're very very busy wow. these days, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I mean, my my idea of community would be um, people who have those those similar values, but who also represent a diversity of views, a diversity of ages, races. Um, and really um, bring their own unique gifts to the table. Um, yeah. And I think that, I mean, that would be what an ideal community looks like to me. And, I mean, you know, if we were thinking back to, you know, prehistoric humans and in, in small hunter-gatherer bands, um, there would be all ages represented, you know, within a small group, and they would make decisions, um, you know, and, and value the the voices of of the elders and and some some cultures really value the voices of the children and and we would yeah. actually um, you know appreciate the gifts and inputs of everybody in different ways and that's something that a lot of indigenous awesome. cultures do very well right and yeah. that we as a Western culture tend not to do very well we tend to elevate the voices of of white people of of males of yep. the able-bodied, um, you know, of, of those who have traditionally come to um, to represent power, power yeah. and hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting that you mention, you don't even think about that, um, yeah, fully abled, like you just said, not differently abled people. When do you ever see mm. them making decisions or even being at the board talking mm -hmm. about it, right? We make decisions for them. Or we, yeah. the able-bodied community. Yeah. I'd never thought about that. So in, in that sense, um, like, I was just thinking, like, how, how do you structure this community in order? So, like, I interviewed someone, Natalie Kiriako. She's a, she runs an environmental, like, wildlife conservation group in Australia. Mm -hmm. And on her board, she's got an 11-year-old who's, like, this outspoken animal lover. And he runs board meetings and makes decisions and you know and I was like when you're saying that that immediately came to mind I was like people think it's ridiculous but mm -hmm. it's time that we actually bring this next generation in because they're the ones yeah. who are going to have to be you yeah. know living in that transition because it does mm -hmm. seem yeah that there's going to be a massive transition yeah. happening. And, it, it, and it needs to be it needs to be um what's the word I'm looking for um it needs to come from a place of, of good intentions and, and not just yeah. be lip service because exactly. I, you know, I see, I see these incredible youth getting up at COP26 at the climate conference yeah. and talking to our world leaders. And, and it's fantastic that they've got them there and they're giving them this voice. But my sense is that, is that it's, you know, some of it is, is lip service. They're just For they're the bringing, cameras. They're bringing the youth in, they're, do, they're doing the things they seem to be doing. But, but very few of our world leaders are prepared to admit that it's, it's, it's complete systems change of everything that we have come yep. to know as normal that yep. is going to be required to address climate change. And the public yep. aren't ready to hear that either. No, well, especially those that are benefiting from the system as it is now, right? Exactly. No, yeah. no one wants. So, in that sense, like disruptive technologies, like I guess new monetary systems. I guess you touched upon Bitcoin, peer-to-peer yeah. yeah, -peer no, lending, like mm -hmm. the commons. Yeah, and that's that's the thing is that a lot of this work, you know, needs to start at grassroots, ground level. It needs to start with communities deciding that there are alternatives to monetary exchange or that there are alternatives to importing food from around the world yeah um, and, and just and getting on with it and doing it um, and certainly that's you know that is that is making a great local impact um, we just need much much more of it yeah and and for that to happen we need voices like yours to be amplified I guess that's something yeah. that yeah, well, I think to I shock think for people it to happen a little bit. on a wide on a wide scale, we really need quite broad scale mind shifts, and that's where I think yeah. the role of story comes in is in um, painting, um, and this is where the, the book title comes in. The future untold yeah. is painting a different a different version of the future and reimagining what the future could Love be it. like, rather than this story that we've been sold. 
about infant yeah. growth and <laughs> all, yeah, that, exactly. all, all those fairy tales, as as Greta Thunberg puts it. <laughs> and the and like the untouchable things, like it's 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 yeah. uh, sacrilegious to even talk about the fact that a shareholder can't get his the money. You know, these are the things like taboos that we need to break that we mm -hmm. collectively still are a little bit intimidated by because we all have bank accounts and we need yeah. to pay our rent and. Mm -hmm. um, it made me think as well. So when you were talking about that epiphany, when I watched your big world, small planet, I had a similar, like, I'm not an ignorant person. Like I do understand what's going on, but when you'd framed it the way you did, yeah. like, do you know what I mean? That poem you're talking about, it's talking about the last couple of 10,000s of years of human history. Yeah. 75,000 years. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I'll link to it if that's okay with you within oh, your bio so people can, yes, but I think it's also, in your story, you've done this kind of innovative new yeah, way in, of... Yeah, it's in the book. So, um, I mean, as a spoken word poet, I've always been very reluctant to put my poetry into print because I, you know... It's I, performance, I'm all, yeah. I'm all about the hearing the words, seeing the poet, seeing the gesture, um, yeah. hearing, hearing their tone and the rhythm and cadence of a poem. And you can pick up some of that from a book, but not, not completely. No, so... Yeah. Um, so I, I did put four of my spoken word pieces into this book. It's not a poetry book, but, you know, they're interspersed throughout. And to reconcile that reluctance to put it into print, I've, um, I've put QR codes. with That is with amazing. I love that. <laughs> and they That's link just... through to um, brand new video, produced videos of each poem so you can actually see me um performing those poems that's so epic because i was like at first i was like she's put qr poems in there i was like but that will only work for people who are reading it on a kindle and then i was like uh people who are reading the book will have a phone in their hand and they yeah. can yeah. yeah so it's like well, same, my same mind didn't kindle, right? if you've got your phone you, you just hover it over your kindle How, and, and it and takes you, you straight to there amazing who gave you that idea to use qr codes because i've never had i've never I don't heard know. about that in i'm the book not even before. sure where i where that's I, pretty got that idea um i've never seen it before in a book no it's i haven't either so <laughs> i think you might be one of the i'm going to research this afterwards and put it in the bio the world's first author with the key first transmedia transmedia yeah, exactly <laughs> I, I don't Amazing. think i don't think that'd be a pretty bold claim <laughs> yeah and you also had um quite a big hitter of the climate research uh johan rockström Yes. You wrote the foreword. How, so how did you get to meet him? So interesting, right? Like uh, that, that poem that we've just been talking about is yeah. called Big World, Small Planet, the remix. Yeah, the um, remix. Amazing. Yeah. And, um, and Johan has a book called Big World, Small Planet. And so that poem uh, is actually something that I wrote after reading his book. It's a beautiful book. It's accompanied by, um, you know, uh, wildlife photographs by Matthias Klum. He's yeah. an award-winning wildlife photographer, and um, and I I wrote this sort of five-minute summary of many of the things that come up in the book and in the way that we've found ourselves with this current climate situation from many many incremental steps in human history, um, and then things have accelerated greatly, of course, in the last hundred and fifty or two hundred years. Um, but I performed that poem I first performed that poem at New Frontiers which was yeah. an event, event run by the Edmund Hillary Fellowship up here in Upper Hutt and um and Johan Rockström was the um keynote speaker that oh year. wow and so I went on stage right before him and used this poem to introduce him <laughs> as such yeah. um and he got, you know, he got up on stage afterwards and, and did his spiel and said, you know, that might be the <laughs> the best summary of the book that I've ever heard. <laughs> oh wow, that's so <laughs> awesome! <laughs> yeah, so we um we we stayed in touch a little bit, and I and I connected with him, um yeah, earlier this year to see if he might write the foreword, and he said yes right away. Ah, oh, that's so awesome, mm. and I guess because I mean this is something that was coming to me just now as well when you're talking about. So, I mean, poetry in itself is kind of like, it's, it's in many cultures, it's the cornerstone of storytelling. Like mm. in Germany, the oldest books like Faust and all that, they all are poems, like mm. long form poems. And I guess 
how seeing that you are someone who really enjoys the delivery and the performance and like that's a part that's like a facet of your poem like if you say that mm -hmm. the science of poems the stanzas and verses and a a b like the performance is another aspect of your poem so that when you write it down a little bit of it gets lost because your voice isn't there and your rhythm so i was going to say in what sense has that um and has that influenced your own ability to tell stories that aren't in that poetry format? Did you have mm. to, like, when you wrote this book, did you have to somehow, you know, stop yourself from going, you know, putting it into it? <laughs> putting it you know into what the I book. Mean? <laughs> yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess because, you know, uh, being a, being a performance poet has been one element of, of my career over the last 10 or 12 years, but, um, but equally, I've worked in communications roles, and I've, you know, I've I identify myself as much as anything as as a storyteller, and, yeah. a, and, a, and a strategist, like a narrative strategist in terms of how to how to craft compelling stories. Um, and I've I've written, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of blog posts. So it's yeah. certainly something that I have been working on in a professional capacity and a personal capacity um, over the last ten years. Um, yeah. So the prose came quite well, came quite easily to me. Um, in fact, the the writing of the book, the first round, um, went went really well and was the bit that I enjoyed the most. It's the editing that that really sucks. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, did you yeah. get someone good to help you? Did yeah, you do. Common? Yeah, I mean, I, I went through a couple of self editing rounds myself first before yeah. I got a professional editor. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's it's you know that that's when you're getting down to the nitty gritty of the line by line kind of like does this go here? Uh, or does that yeah, go there? the worst. Or have I already repeated that earlier two pages ago or that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I struggle. Like sometimes I'm just like, are these guys trying to justify their existence? You know, like why are they pointing this out? I'm like, this is my art. This is the way it's supposed to be. Like, um, yeah. do you know the documentary <laughs> filmmaker Werner Herzog? No, I don't. Have you? That. You must. No. He's um he's made like close encounters at the end of the world. He did he did like Nosferatu and all these like Klaus Kinski movies. Okay. He's quite an outrageous documentary filmmaker <laughs> and he writes his work as well. And he notoriously believes that editors are superfluous. Like you do not need them. He's like, you know, in his German accent, he's like says like <laughs> I write some of the best prose in the world. Like he fully believes in himself and he just thinks that it's part of the art everything yeah. that's down there and even if a sentence is a little bit because like everything um grammar and it's 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 fluid mm. it's changing and our and our you look at what like the words that have been added to the oxford dictionary over the years yeah. you know never used to exist and now you've got mm. text speak and so in I many ways so. yeah I, I guess it depends on your medium and and where you're looking for what you're trying to say what you're trying well to i was say, specifically yeah. thinking in terms of your epiphany and you know how mm. you know that spoken word bit that you did about water moved everyone so much that you're like i've got yeah. so much i want people to understand like i almost need to do this mm -hmm. in the format that i'm the most you know where I can evoke the most powerful response. Like I didn't finish, but that big world, small planet did the same thing for me. Like I had, I know what's going on, but that, and I've studied biology and I like, I understand all this, but that, and that small little, whatever, how long it's five minutes or four minutes. Like yeah. it just hit me hard. And I like, you know, I was like mm. lost for words for a while afterwards. And you're right. It's, it's that, it's that performance. It's that, it's the rhythm involved that somehow it, it, it hits your soul. It's, there's something in there that then resonates on a deeper level than reading words on a piece of paper or, cause it's your soul doing that. And it's like, you, you re you're almost, you're, you're, you're this quantum entanglement, I guess they'd call it in physics where you see truth mm -hmm. and suddenly you go, ah, yeah. yeah. And I think, how do you, how do you make that a force multiplier? Like, how do you, what's the business term for you? How do you upscale? Like, yeah. that type of experience because yeah not everyone i think it's it's not something that you can scale in the way that you would scale a traditional startup or technology company it's oh. very much a person-to-person -person thing and um and i mean you know there's probably ways that you could go about it with with um you know online courses and that sort of thing um but yeah i don't know that i want to go down that path i, I no. get a lot of um 
I get a lot of satisfaction out of the out of the person to person, you know, yeah, kanohi sort of approach. Nice. Yeah, and then I was thinking in terms of like artificial intelligence. I was like, is this something that we could encode God an no. algorithm? God no. <laughs> you say God no. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> no. Um, so I interviewed this woman the other day. She was like, she written this book on leadership, and like we got to the end, and she had to catch this catch this train. And I had this one question I wanted to ask her, and I didn't manage to ask her. So I'm gonna just pose it to you. You can ask it if you you can answer it if you want. But so she talked about leadership and all these great you know requirements, and that everyone needs to be a leader now, and it's not about the Messiah or someone coming down and helping us, you know, in terms of climate change and these massive changes that we have to make. Um, and I was like, well, can't we program all these empathy and, you know, all these things that we need leaders to have within one AI algorithm. And then I was like, are we moving towards a world that is going to increasingly exist within a virtual reality? Like Facebook is trying to create meta now and people are working from home. So it could be that in the future, everyone goes to work, but it's in a virtual with headset on. And then there's an AI that is your boss, but isn't actually a human being. And I was like, will we ever have a world where AI are better leaders of humanity with the capability of bringing these fundamental changes in community, you know, like you're talking about and the way we interact, the myths that we use to propel our thoughts. Mm -hmm. Will AI ever be capable of bringing that change about in your mind? This is a big question. Is, <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a, uh, it's a multi-part question. Um, yeah. whether, whether it is capable, mm, maybe. Whether it will be capable, absolutely not. You look at the people okay. who, who are programming AIs and yeah. they, they start to look the same, right? You've got they're, yeah. they're overwhelmingly male. They're overwhelmingly True. Caucasian. Um, yeah, they're the Silicon Valley archetypes, and and they bring their own biases, biases, and uh, their own f lenses and filters. So never I thought think, about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I think it's um, you know it's very difficult, if not impossible, I think, to uh, program an AI that it does not pick up on human biases. And that's where I think oh, yeah. in terms of leadership, that's a slippery slope because you've got yep. this AI that, you know, has, has been programmed by a human and um, a, a human who, who is not objective. And, um, and uh, even with the best intentions, that human will miss things. They don't know what they don't know. They're not aware of their own privilege. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're, we're, that would ever be. That was a, a great answer. <laughs> but I was about to say, is it a slippier slope than having an actual human being as a leader? You no. know, like a Donald Trump <laughs> who's sitting there who can, who's one Adderall sniffing away from going completely mental and saying something on his, you know? <laughs> so I, I think yeah. human beings are way more fallible than any AI that we can. So I was saying, like, let's say in a hypothetical world, they call you up these guys the silicon guys you're referring to, and they're like we need you as a consultant and you bring oxtrom and anyone that you want like a team of you know yeah. change makers and you guys are the ones who tell them yeah in that well, ideal scenario i probably need them we tell them that we need a we need a, a team of about 500 people representing amazing uh, i love that all, all diversity of of different uh political views of different uh, races, ethnicities, genders. Um, yeah, it, it, there's just, you know, even if it was me and Johan Rockström like programming this AI, I'm going to bring my own biases to that. He's going to bring his own biases to that. It's, yeah. You know, I'm, I don't, I'm not free of biases. You're not free of biases. The same no, way unfortunately not. So, yeah, when you say that we... I think like uh, AI is, is less infallible than humans, I'm, I'm not sure I prescribe to that view because humans can can change and be and be you know, uh, you know change their views and 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 uh, yeah have have a lot more nuance than I believe. I know I know the technology is improving and that you know it's it's crazy it, it scares me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but certainly there's something that you just can't replicate with a machine. There's an innate humanness there that. 
that will never be present for me. At yeah. Least. So it's like capturing the spirit, like when you did your poem mm-hmm. in Canada, and that a computer or a robot will never be able to mimic. No, 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 not at all. Or s- storytelling in general, or yeah. crafting poetry. Mm-hmm. And they, they might be, a- be able. They might be able to do a very good. They might be able to get very close, but they'll never. They'll never have it hundred percent the way that a human would. Yeah. And um, so, and what are you planning now with this book? Are you going to do a book tour of New Zealand? Is that something um, that's in the book? It has, it has been something that's, that's been on my mind. I haven't made any plans yet. Um, yeah. But certainly um, it would be a fun thing to do uh, maybe over late summer or something like that when everybody's, yeah. you know, back at, back at home, back at work, so they're actually around. Because that's the thing about summer tours is that everybody's on holiday anyway. Nobody wants True. to go to, go to a book a book. Reading, no, don't say anyway. that. In, in like you know early January <laughs> but um but yeah I mean certainly towards the end of the summer I I might um do a bit of a road trip yeah and so and you when you were mentioning your blogs and everything is there a website that I can send people to to read those as well you're writing um, yeah that- I mean um I'm, I'm writing on medium.com and you can just okay. look, look me up on there um, but I think there's, there's also a link to my blog from, from my website, which is afutureuntold.com. So if you just go on afutureuntold.com, there's a, there's a tag, tab at the top that, that takes you to the blog. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And so in terms of your 10 myths that are at the end of the book, yeah. would you refer to the, this might be, a, you can totally avoid this question, like the Ten Commandments, would you call them? <laughs> would you call them Ten Myths? They are, aren't they? In a way. Like, well, they kind of <laughs> are. They're, they're instructions. They're narratives of like how to live a good and successful and and you know moral life. Yeah. And in some yeah. ways, these these new myths, you know, each each of the chapters um, uh, starts opens with this is what the current narrative is, and I'll give you a, um, an example if you just give me a moment here. Yeah. Um, is um so there's starts with the current narrative and a new myth so in the in the chapter called from competition to collaboration the current narrative that we have is that competition is the best way to drive innovation to solve problems and the new myth is that when we work together anything is possible and um amazing yeah i mean there's so what was that from competition to collaboration yeah another one of them is from scarcity to abundance and that's that's around this idea that, you know, we're, we're told all the time that, that resources are scarce, that food is scarce, and we have to put a fair price on them. But we don't, we don't recycle most of what we use, and, no, and our exactly. food distribution systems are absolutely nuts. You know, they're, they're much more yeah. a question of geopolitical boundaries and our culture around food and, and who should get food and who shouldn't. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's manufactured scarcity is what I call it, you know, when, especially yeah. when we're talking about food. And the fact that we get told, you know, a, a big, a big um, reason for proponents of industrial agriculture is that, you know, we we get told we need to feed ten billion people by twenty fifty or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but they forget to tell you that roughly one third of the food that is produced in the world goes to waste. It gets chucked out, yeah. and then in some places it's illegal for homeless people to go through and yeah. pick up the rubbish. Like it's just right? insane. It's like. Such- perverse systems yeah. that are just absolutely and then they're designed to manufacture scarcity because that keeps prices high in physical world but also in your brain right yeah so mentally through whatever means they can yeah. they will same with the whole myth of overpopulation like i read once that the entire world population can fit into the state of texas mm-hmm. at the population density of paris like that as a visual, like, right. and then right. suddenly this whole, we can't afford to have 10 billion people. That's, that's complete bullshit. Like, and so those are amazing. So, I mean, this needs to happen at the, at the school level, almost like this. It does. Is, yeah. Yep. Yep. And I'm working to get the book into schools. I mean, it's not, a, yeah. it's not an easy read for, for, you know, primary school students, but certainly young adults, I think would get yeah. a bit out of this. And a lot of it will resonate because a lot of young people already are thinking this way they're accustomed to thinking that capitalism is absolutely i don't know if i'm allowed to swear on this podcast yeah of course you can go for it (laughs) capitalism is fucked right um so 
they they already a lot of them think that way. Um, so it's not it's not a yeah. hard sell to that generation to say, hey, you know, true, working together is better than than unfettered capitalism, and yeah, you know, um, having having women. Uh, equal equal to men is 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 a good thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. this, this is the stuff that a lot of the younger generation no. are like. Oh, of course, uh, of course it is. Yeah. But like the boomer ones are like, what? What does that mean? Like I tell you what, Ali. Like I've noticed on LinkedIn even. So I've got my gender as LinkedIn as they them, right? That's just what I've got, and I'll see people commenting on a completely different subject. They always bring it back to this whole, there are only two genders. And I'm like, well, there's a difference between gender and sexuality. Like I have to have this debate, but they're so fascinated by it. Like for them. And it's funny. Like it's always got a laughing face afterwards. And I'm like, how old are you? And like, this guy's like in his, his shirt and tie, like with his, you know, on his LinkedIn profile. I'm like, you must be going completely bonkers. Man, for your bosses to be seeing you. But it's it's clearly showing that that traditional male dominated white you know straight character is losing their mind because they're losing grip on whatever fledgling power that they had. So that is a good sign that they're coming to their senses, finally going, uh, this yeah. whole e easy run that we've had for yep. millennia, yeah, is coming to important. an end. And it's important to to you know also communicate to that people that it's not a personal thing. So yeah. when you say that you know we need to to take you know take power and distribute it more so that it's not just straight white men who make up all the rules. It's not a personal attack on them for being straight or white or, or a man. No. It's just describing the reality of of how the current systems and have come to be and and who wrote you know, not consciously, but sometimes consciously perhaps, but who, who wrote those narratives that the world is built upon? And it, it is the worldviews of those people because they have traditionally wielded the power in, yep. in politics and in the home and in, in you know. Media, movies. The, yeah, yeah, all sectors. Exactly. So it's not a personal attack. And that's what I think often gets muddled up as they're, as they're like, well, I've worked hard to get where I am. Yeah, exactly. Say, well, it's not my difference. fault. Yeah, there's a yeah. big difference between somebody working hard, which you absolutely did do, you know, well done. Yeah. And, but you got a whole bunch of leg ups along the way, which you'll never even recognize. No, that's the tragedy of, of it all. Are. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a, you know, a, a queer black woman um, who works hard does not have the same result. No, all the odds are stacked against her, basically. Yeah. Hmm. incredible so i've actually got a lot of teachers that listen to this podcast in new zealand because i did my teaching degree so all of my oh, fellow <laughs> students and everything yeah they you can contact you it's on wheelers they can they can order it through wheelers well i was going to say they could even invite you to come if there is ever a potential well, yeah that to come to schools because i think mm -hmm. not only maybe the book might be a bit difficult but you just talking to them and mm. you're giving them the book as an option but and even performing the poetry like that would be i think something and performing like the next generation of mm -hmm. young slam poets i mean how much do you do workshops with i have done workshops with you have with i think i have seen stuff yeah. from you mm -hmm. yeah yep. so i mean that would be something cool to organize in yeah. conjunction with this book oh well if anybody's welcome to get in contact with me through yeah. my website yeah yeah. get Ali on the case amazing <laughs> and we can yeah so what do you prefer to be called that because I mean I know you as Ali Jacks from the poetry sure, but... yeah yeah so Ali Jacks was, was a poetry pseudonym that I that I yeah. adopted actually I, I am I adopted that when I was working for the Green Party because I was just so uh, hyper aware of like how the media would jump on pol political things that I was terrified that something that I would say in a poem on a stage somewhere would like somehow get twisted to be like this, you know, so-and-so from the Green Party said this. So oh, I, wow. So it's your pseudonym. So I actually picked a pseudonym and was like, I'm going to perform under a different name to just one, one step removal. Protect yourself. Um, but but now I've, now I'm I'm basically Come. using Alina Siegfried in my poetry and, and in my uh, writing and other work as yeah. like. Yeah. I mean, I'll always be Ellie Jacks on some level, but uh but certainly, I'm I'm trying to move away from that, and uh, it's it's confusing, right? When you're known, yeah. when you're known as well, a spoken word artist by one name, and then you put out a different a book under a different name, it's confusing. Yeah, wow, well, people will make the connection, I think now, I hope more so. increasingly.
Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you to perform, but I think we send people to some of your. I'll send them so they can actually see you because I think seeing you and yeah. you hand movement, even just a vocal recording, kind of doesn't do it justice. No, by all means, just yeah. I mean, generally. do you have it written on your book, New Zealand Slam Poet, two thousand twelve? No, do you? Uh, it's. I hope you do. Like um, on the it cover, is, it is on the back cover. Yeah, on the says, back cover. Yeah, it's on the back cover. National New Zealand National Poetry Slam champion. Amazing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And are you having? Is there any plans for um to continue down this writing path? Have you got more fodder? Would you write a fiction um, story since you're such an amazing storyteller? Um, I've always got more photo. I've got a lot of things I want to say, Chris. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know about fiction. Um, I've never that really, something that I've never really been super drawn to fiction. I know that I know that it's where a lot of the money is. <laughs> and <laughs> as I have discovered recently, um, you know, uh, women's erotic fiction is oh like, man huge to be. like yeah. so huge it's ridiculous yeah um, I've, I've um you know i've i've gotten to some of these paid promotional email lists to to book lovers and like there's my serious non-fiction book and amongst like 20 <laughs> other titles with these, with these buff men's chests on the front cover i'm like oh, oh my, my god. god oh the world is lost um but <laughs> But, yeah. That's one way you could get your message yeah. out, though. I was just thinking. I guess you could, I you guess could I somehow could wrap it like within climate, an erotic novel. Crisis. Yeah. yeah, within an erotic novel. <laughs> like Captain yeah. Planet style. I don't know. Yeah, that could be one way. Yeah. Oh, man. We'll but, see. I mean, yeah, I no. certainly see more nonfiction in my future. I'm, yeah. I, don't, I don't think this will be my last book. Um, no. You know, the jury's still out on fiction, I think. Amazing. Mm. And anything you want to tell people besides the over and above the 10 myths, if you could summarize one takeaway message that we could push people forwards or get them like how they can embrace or how they can talk about narratives that could help potentially change, you know, these fundamental worldviews. Yeah, I mean, my... A big theme in the book is about overcoming polarization. And in in that regard, I think, you know, no matter what your stance on any given issue, just listen respectfully to the stories of those who disagree with you. Because there's, you know, there's so much disagreement out there right now, whether it's political, whether it's the alt-right or whether it's, you know, vaccines or not and, and all of that is just to, rather than have a narrative of that person that doesn't agree with you and like, oh, that stupid ignorant person or that anti-vaxxer or that person that said this or, you know, try to think of it in terms of they each have their own story and they each have their own narratives that they believe are true. And they came from somewhere. It's not like they decided one day to, to get up and, you know, um, no, have, you're totally right. Views. They, everybody has their own histories and their own backstories and their experiences from which they came to these views. Yeah. Um, and if we focus on common values, which I think, you know, you can't go wrong when you're talking about your values. Yeah. Um, you've got a much better chance of, you know, of, of being able to convince somebody or, or at least, you know, make them at least see your point of view, even if they don't agree with it. By listening. Yeah, yeah I, I, specifically in the realm of the whole anti-vax, vax debate at the moment, I listened to an RNZ podcast that, essentially said exactly what you just said mm-hmm. you're never going to convince someone no. that has obviously been has had exactly. hours of this information put into their mind whether it's true or not we don't even need to talk about but yeah. but if you want to have an influence on them mm-hmm. listen to them that's listen. all they say yeah because yeah. mm-hmm. once you listen you win them over onto your side and they suddenly feel accepted mm-hmm. and then whatever you want to do with that information yeah. i just find how do you <laughs> Like there's two things. There's one's how do you retain your sanity, and then two, there's the paradox of tolerance, right? Yeah. So if you tolerate the intolerant, mm. suddenly things change a little bit. So it's like yeah. depends on what they're saying, I guess. Yeah, and it's a practice, right? It's a it's a muscle you have to flex. It doesn't come naturally to people. And and what I say to people is you need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. 
you know yeah that's <laughs> a great <laughs> that's that's a very very good that's, that's what we all need to do is we get to need to get much more accepting of the fact that we don't feel comfortable with what somebody's saying or we don't agree with them and that that's okay you know and and wow yeah. I needed to hear that today. Mm. So I've been cold showering in the morning, Alina, like, okay. and that's one way for me to, you know, get uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That is. But it's, it's like somewhere where you're like, oh, such a nice warm shower. But if you turn that to freezing cold, it's not so nice for the first two or three seconds, but then you realize it's almost exactly the same as the warm shower. It's a really bizarre transition. Mm. So I think that being, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is, yeah probably the best advice in these times right now where everything is changing. Yeah. Um, and just wanted, holding your yeah. opinions lightly, you know, nice. Just realizing nice. that they're just, they're just opinions, even if they are grounded in science or fact or whatever justification you have for your opinions, you know, um, just, yeah. you know, holding you, them you, lightly. Can, you can still believe them, but hold them lightly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Right. So uh, me, we, mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's one of the commandments. Well, yeah. myths. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I was gonna say, I think um, Muhammad Ali used that as a commencement to his speech, like at a Harvard graduation class. He's like, oh, really? "This is the first poem I've ever written," and he's like, "All he says is he goes, he points to himself and goes, me," and then he holds his arms out to the whole class and he goes, "We," or that's yeah. how he ended the speech. Wow, yeah. awesome. <laughs> And so the two things that we have taken away is the tree to me, from tree to me, mm-hmm. yep. and from me to we. From, so from me to we. We can, yeah. we can shortcut cut that whole thing from tree to we. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> no. right? Exactly. But like, if you, I was just thinking of a tattoo I could get and like that would be the... Like the formula I could put down and like from tree to wheat is yeah. um, amazing. Thanks so much for giving us this time, Alina. I realized we're now running to the hour. And yeah, I hope I can talk to you again maybe next year, early next year or something if you've got some time yeah. and we can Absolutely. revisit. And I'm going to send the people to your book and to your poems and anywhere else like yeah, Twitter or something, website the website website will yeah, be the no, best. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I just I avoid Twitter these days. Every time I go on, are you Twitter, not doing I'm, Twitter? I'm, no. I, well, I'm on Twitter and I go on there occasionally, but it, it seems like every time I, think I'm I on follow Twitter, you, I realize within about six minutes why I don't know on Twitter. <laughs> but they're all the same. Twitter's at least the most <laughs> honest I've found. Like it's, yeah, you need to have a thick skin, but yeah, but it's just a shitstorm. It's it's just yeah. people trying to be right all the time. And, yeah, and you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's some nuggets of gold in there as well. And sometimes people yeah. are respectful, but I just, I get, yeah, quite dismayed every time I go on Twitter. But certainly I'm on Yeah, Instagram. they definitely don't hold their opinions lightly. I'm on Instagram. I'm on, I'm on you know, awesome. Facecrack. I'm on the LinkedIn's and all of that. So, Facecrack. Yeah. Love that. Meta. It's trying, called Meta now. No, I'm Meta, no. yeah. I'm trying, <laughs> trying to get myself to go on TikTok, but I just, I just don't. I was about to say that to you, <laughs> Alina. Like, <laughs> no, 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 but like, Books on TikTok. Have you heard about that? No. It's like 1.6 billion people. And it's the most subscribed TikTok, like, because you get all these areas and subjects. So you have to, unfortunately, get on TikTok. But what I would do is find someone who's a little bit more into that stuff and just get them to help you do that because I couldn't do it. (laughs) Well, I couldn't do it either, to be honest. And I'm quite versed in this stuff. I was just on there going like, it was too much. It was like sensory overload, (laughs) but Google books on TikTok and you'll see like, it's, it's ridiculous. The following that's there, but you're going to have to make visual content, which you do anyway. Yeah. So I reckon start out with big world, small planet on TikTok. (laughs) You think so? Okay. Tag me. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks so much. Uh, Mauriora and everything. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll talk again soon. Okay, much love. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See ya. Amazing. I think you'll agree with me that that was an absolutely fantastic listen. Big shout out to Alina. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And 
being such a great guest and answering my question about whether or not AI should be leaders of humanity. I think you answered that candidly and absolutely brilliantly, seeing that I completely put you on the spot about that. None of these podcasts are planned, so Alina was amazing in that. And yeah, go check out her book. Um, the link to it will be in the show notes below. And yeah, thank you guys for listening. Um, we've got a couple of really cool shows coming up in the next weeks. So we've got Lisa Fremont, um, a writer from New York City who's just brought out an incredibly funny substack called Why You'll Hate Me. Then we got Jonathan Slatt, um, a shortlist for the National Science Book Award in America, his book on owls, Owls of the Eastern Ice. That's coming up as well. And we got an incredibly amazing award-winning journalist from Australia, Antoinette Latouf, who's going to be on the show as well, who's about to bring out a great book that's called How to Lose Friends or How to Win Friends and Influence White People. It's a great little read. If you look at the bio, I'll be sharing that as well coming up to it. So yeah, thank you guys heaps for listening. Kia ora, Tefano, Mauriora, and have a great week. You, bye-bye.